All right, Alexander, let's do another update as to what is going on in Ukraine. Let's, uh, let's begin, as we always do, with what's going on on the ground. And then maybe we can shift gears after you explain the situation going on on the ground as you see things. Maybe then we can switch gears to talk a little bit about uh, the geopolitics, the economic situation in Ukraine, in Russia, in Europe, just kind of you know, go over uh, that side of things, because it's been a while since we've touched upon the the economic, political, geopolitical stuff going on in the in uh, the region. So let's uh, let's begin with uh, on the ground. What is happening? Yeah, well, as you absolutely correctly say, I mean, you know, we we, we, we always start on the ground. That's our traditional uh, view position. Um, it seems to me that it's much as it's become routine now. There is massive fighting around Bakhmut, continuous shelling. A U.S. official has now admitted to Reuters that the Russians are making incremental gains. Um, I saw a map uh, recently, a Ukrainian map, by the way, of the fighting, um, in which it explained, it made it clear exactly what the nature of the fighting is. Um, there's obviously fighting in the suburbs, you know, the actual residential areas of Bakhmut. But more importantly, the Russians are gradually, slowly, incrementally taking important villages which sit astride the main, ro the main roads into Bakhmut. They're not in any obvious rush to do this. Ukraine continues to suffer very heavy losses in Bakhmut. Most reports say that over the last couple of weeks, the Ukrainians sent lots of reinforcements to Bakhmut. They slowed for a time the tempo of the Russian advance. It seems over the last 24 hours, it's gradually picked up again. So it seems to me that's the usual story with Bakhmut. I think we can eventually expect this place to fall. The Russians seem to be in no hurry to take it. They're not prepared to suffer any big losses doing so. And elsewhere, the Russians are on what you might call an active defense. In other words, they're building massive fortifications in Zaporozhye, in northern Donbass, in northern Donbass, near Svatovo and Kremenaya. The Ukrainians attempted some kind of offensive about a week ago. We're not getting a huge amount of information about this, but it seems that offensive ran up against these heavy Russian fortified lines and was thrown back. And we're getting more reports that these heavy fortified lines are being even more heavily fortified over the next few weeks. And in Zaporozhye, it looks like it's the same. Now, there's a lot of speculation about what's going to happen over the next few weeks. The head of Ukrainian military intelligence is now saying that Ukraine is going to launch a big offensive sometime in March. Well, we'll see where that happens. Their forces are slowly running down, or so it seems to me. It seems less likely they can launch a big offensive. And whenever they've been trying to launch offensives at the moment, they're not succeeding. And there's huge amount of speculation about what the Russians are going to do with all sorts of people. Daniel Davis is coming up with some projects, you know, to advance to the Ukrainian border with Poland. Um, the military summary channel talked about a big encirclement operation around Donbass. Um, 
I think we'll just have to wait and see that the Russians are preparing something about that. I have no doubt at all. More reports all the time of more build up of Russian troops, Russian weapons, all piling up now in the Donbass area. But my impression increasingly is that the training of the reserve forces who are being organized in entirely new formations is not completed and it won't now it seems to be completed before february perhaps march and maybe that's when the russians will move and i it i don't think that the russians are in any hurry to move because i think that they're satisfied with the way things are going at the moment ukraine attacking in Kremenaya, Zaporozhye, losing men and equipment there, trying to defend Bakhmut, losing men and equipment there. And that works to Russia's attrition strategy. So that's my overall summary about the situation on the battlefronts. Okay, before we talk about the, the economic situation, uh, two quick questions. What do you make of the reports, a lot of reports, that uh, Ukraine will indeed... Um, go after Melitopol, Zaporozhye down to Melitopol. Actually, a lot of uh, U.S. Uh, mainstream media outlets are reporting that that is the uh, the strategy now. That's going to be the next big offensive. I don't know if, if that can be believed or not. Actually, Euronews was reporting on that as well the other day, and I read about that, that the goal is Melitopol. That's the goal, and that's what's going to happen in, uh, in the spring. And what do you make about the other reports coming out now, which are saying that uh, Ukraine's military is so depleted, um, there's a lot of uh, videos and, and, and photos of, of uh, recruiting for, for teenagers in, uh, in Ukraine. Uh, I can't verify by these videos and, and these images, but there, there's a lot out there which are, which are showing that uh, the Ukraine uh, regime, the Aleksky regime, is actually recruiting uh, teenagers now to fight. But the interesting part about this story is that uh, you have um, NATO, hmm, West, Collective West soldiers, because I don't want to say NATO, let's just say Collective West soldiers, under the guise of being mercenaries, now actively being recruited to, uh, to fight in Ukraine. And because that kind of goes into what you just said about the, the attrition strategy and just going slowly, I agree with you that that seems to be the strategy. But uh, once again, doesn't that run the risk of, of also when you go slow and take your time, you also allow the, the collective West NATO to, to also, you know, uh, rebuild and, and, and get mercenaries into Ukraine and train soldiers and do all these things. I mean, it's just not... Russia that benefits from from going slow and taking its time. Mm. Well, let's talk about the Melitopol offensive. This has been talked about a great deal. I mean, it may happen. My own sense is like all of the previous offensives in Kharkiv region, in Kherson region that we've seen, there's a, a, a push-pull. There's some people in Kiev who want it to happen. There's other people in Kiev who oppose it. The general staff, Zaluzhny, General Zaluzhny, he made it very clear in his interview with The Economist that he doesn't want to do it. I mean, that was my, that was my take, absolutely clear. He said, I've only got two brigades. I need hundreds of tanks, hundreds of infantry fighting vehicles, hundreds of howitzers, far more howitzers, 
than I've been that have been provided to me by the West up to now in order to have any chance of success carrying this offensive out. And if I do carry out this offensive, I'm going to weaken and deplete my forces even more when what I'm trying to do at the moment is trying to build them up. And he said, yes, I've got 700,000 men in uniform, but only 200,000 of those are fit for combat. Now, I'm slightly <laughs> in editing, if you like, what he said. But if you read the interview he gave to The Economist, that was basically what he said. And I, I suspect that Zaluzny himself doesn't consider either of the two offensives, the Harkov offensive or the Kherson offensive, in any true sense, a success, because whatever ground the Ukrainians captured has not been turned out to be useful for them. And in Kherson, well, their troops have been shelled all the time and haven't achieved anything. So that's, I think, the military people, I think that they don't want to do this offensive to Militopol. They think it's premature. But you see others who are pushing them to do it. You can you get the sense that the usual people in Washington, in London, in Brussels, they need to keep get Ukraine to keep on doing offensives, winning victories, because otherwise you can't keep the Western public engaged in this story support for this war begins to drain away. We're going to come to the economics of all of this fairly soon. So there's that. And you also get the hardliners in Kiev. The chief of the Ukrainian military intelligence is absolutely clear to me. He's a major advocate of these offensives. He's not involved in planning them, but he's the person who's coming up all the time with claims that the Russians have suffered hundreds of thousands of casualties, that they're running out of missiles, that they're running out of artillery, all of those things. And he's constantly pushing and badgering for these offensives because I suspect Ukrainian military intelligence is one of the most ideological departments of the Ukrainian military and government. And I, I, you know, I think that's a reasonable guess too. So there is push and pull. Now, I think that there will be an attempted Ukrainian offensive in Zaporozhye. I think this is on the cards unless the Russians take steps to preempt it. But I have to also say, looking at the balance of forces the chances of success seem to me to be dwindling. The Russians have built these heavy fortified lines. They've got lots of troops there. They have supplies uh, uh, well organized, including railways leading into uh, um, Zaporozhye region. Ukraine has been trying to plant a few bombs near bridges, but those bridges are nowhere near the key supply nodes. So I, I, I think that this is an offensive that Ukraine is being pushed into making. And I think it will try to do it. But I don't think it's going to achieve anything. And I think that partly part of the intention is obviously to keep this narrative of victories continuing. But it's also perhaps to preempt the much bigger Russian offensive, which is coming either when the ground hardens or perhaps more plausibly, in the spring. Right. And, and what do you make of the of the going slow approach, oh, yeah. benefiting yeah. Russia, but yeah. also benefiting okay. the okay. okay. Now, the, uh, now, the, the West? Now, this is this is actually an important point because it's clear that Ukraine 
I mean, they are running out of Ukrainian manpower. So they're going and they're trying to recruit people in the West. Now, be, be aware, there is a limit to the number of people that the West can send on voluntary recruitment schemes. I mean, you can't send hundreds of thousands of volunteers to Ukraine. I mean, that isn't practical. Perhaps you can send 10, perhaps you can send 20,000 people, um, special ex-special forces. These are highly trained, skilled troops. But... You can't send vast numbers. You can't replace the entire Ukrainian army. If you're going to do that, you have to actually do something completely different. You have to do what the United States did in Vietnam back in the 1960s and start sending regular troops. There's a limit to how much you can send stealth, stealthily people into Ukraine. By the way, it's exactly what happened in Vietnam. In Vietnam, the United States sent advisors, as they were called in those days. I think there were 17,000 of them at one point. There were a lot of them, these so-called advisors, were fulfilling combat roles. But eventually, it became clear that that wasn't enough. And the United States, in that war, decided that it would have to send combat troops, regular U.S. troops to fight in Vietnam with the consequences we all know. So there's a limit to how far this can go. Now, undoubtedly, the Russian go slow strategy does give the West time. And, you know, we've heard reports today. Um, President Biden is now going to send, I'm sure this is going to happen, Bradley infantry fighting vehicles to Ukraine. France is going to send light wheeled tanks, probably not very useful, by the way, in Ukrainian conditions. This is what I've been told. But anyway, they're going to send them. They're going to send more of these volunteers, advisors, mercenaries, contractors, call them what you will. The question is this. Yes, the West does gain from the Russians' go-slow strategy. It does enable them to reinforce Ukraine. The question is, is the Russian ghost low strategy, is time working more for the West or is it working for the Russians? Remember, the West can send perhaps, say, 20,000 of these contractors to Ukraine. Is that going to balance out the 380,000 people that Russia is sending to the battlefronts, the fact that, you know, these people are being trained up to a certain level, the fact that, you know, thousands of Russian drones are being produced, hundreds of tanks are being produced. We don't know whether ammunition stocks are being rebuilt, but most probably they are. Is is who is gaining more from time? And, uh, you know, all the indications I've seen is at the moment is that the Russians are. Now, you know, it may be that this is wrong, but show to me how it is wrong. I mean, at the moment, it seems to me that the Russians are going slow because from their point of view, time works in their favor. Maybe that's wrong. Maybe they're being complacent. Maybe they haven't understood this. Maybe the West is preparing something that the Russians aren't anticipating. You always have to take all those accounts, all those factors into account. But for the moment, 
it seems to me the time is working more for the Russians than it is for the collective West and for Ukraine. Okay, so you have uh, an 18 billion euro uh, loan going to, uh, to the Alensky regime from the EU. The EU is also getting a loan in order to loan it to, to Ukraine. This money, this 18 billion is going to start uh, getting paid to Ukraine in, in tranches to keep the, the Alensky government afloat. You have the, uh, the seizure of Russian assets, which, which I'm positive is going to happen, even though everybody is warning the EU not to do it for various, uh, for multiple reasons, starting with international law and going all the way down to, to having uh, companies and wealthy individuals you know, pull out their, their assets from, from Europe because of fear. But everyone is telling them, don't do it, but we know they're going to do it. Estonia is already kind of trying to find the legal loopholes to freeze the assets that they can get their hands on, get their hands on and then transfer uh, those assets um, to Ukraine. And you also have uh, the Ukraine economy. I was reading reports that the Ukraine economy is in a very, very bad state. Understandably, it's in a very bad state. And um, there are, there, there, this is the last part that I want to, talk to you about. There are conflicting reports about the state of the economy in Europe. There are some reports saying that Europe is uh, making it through. And there are other reports saying that uh, there's going to be a big recession. It, it really depends on where you go and what, and, and what you look at. And, and it carries over to oil and gas and all of these things. You really don't don't get a clear picture as to where things are going in Europe and you don't know what to what to believe with with how things are going in Europe. So quite a lot to discuss, but um, where, where do you want to begin? Well, let, let's start with the seizure of the assets, because that's a nice, simple, straightforward story. It's very simple. It's very straightforward. The EU is going to do it. Estonia is being picked as the people who will start this process and get the ball rolling. Um, every single legal authority that I know of is uh, united in agreeing that this is completely illegal, that there's no basis upon which this can be done. I am going to say something. I think that the very fact that the EU authorities and you know, people like Baerbock and Habeck and Christian Lindner in Germany and um, no doubt Sunak and all of these people are being warned that this is illegal, I think far from putting them off from doing it, I think this is encouraging them to do it. I think they're getting, getting, they get a thrill from disregarding the law on these sort of things. This is my consistent impression ever since they started the whole sanctions bandwagon back in February. I think they've thrown away any idea of law and you know, legal, um, legal effects on this. Um, after all, they froze the assets of the Russian Central Bank. To my mind, that was already clearly illegal. What they've discovered is that they can do these illegal things. They can, they can, you know, get away with it, perhaps not in the long term, but immediately. As I said, I think that gives them a thrill. I think that makes them feel even more powerful or powerful because they can do these things as they believe with impunity. And so I think they will do them. I think this, this is where this is all going. And remember, the whole affair, the whole Ukraine crisis 
I mean, we've discussed this many times, going all the way back to beyond 2014 has been in a great extent all about money. So given that it's all about money, well, here you have hundreds of billions of dollars of Russian assets all over the world, or at least all over the Western world. Maybe not all of them belonging to the Russian government, but you know, some of it belonging to people that you've sanctioned and therefore to whom you've denied legal recourse. So you're going to just seize that money because that's what you've been doing all along. That's the way you keep this operation going. And I, you know, I have absolutely no doubt this is going to happen. There's going to be all kinds of euphoric headlines about you know, how this is a wonderful new precedent showing that aggressors will be made to pay and all that sort of thing. As I said, everybody, all the lawyers um, are advising against doing it. The reality is Western courts are not going to stand in the way of what governments are doing. We've seen that repeatedly. I discussed in a program we just did about Venezuela, how the British government seized Venezuela's gold reserves. Venezuela um, went to the high court in London. The high court said, no, 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 it's fine. What the British government has done is absolutely fine because President Guaido is the real <laughs> president of Venezuela. President Guaido has now gone. Uh, the Venezuelan government that brought the case is still there, but I haven't seen anybody suggest that Britain is going to return the gold reserves. So that's what they're going to do. They're going to come up with some kind of legal expedient for doing something that is obviously illegal. They know they can get away with it. The courts will not stand in their way, and they will do it. Of that, I have absolutely no doubt at all. By the way, on the topic of the courts, the one court that might have been an embarrassment and a problem for them is the court of the World Trade Organization, which um, is to some extent independent of Western control because lots of non-Western countries have a big role in the World Trade Organization. And what they've been doing apparently for three years is that they've been blocking the appointment of judges to that particular court. So it's not functioning. So that's, that's, that's how they work. So, I mean, you know, put aside Exactly. Put aside any question of legality, they'll just do it. Uh, in the long term, it will be disastrous if you're MBS, if you're the Sultan of Brunei, if you're the Emir of Qatar, if you're any number of people, you say, well, better not have my money in the West, the get out. But as I said, that's not something that these people, the Ursulas, the beer box, the um, Newlands are going to worry about. That's not something that they are going to be bothered with in the slightest. So that's what they're going to do. Um, so I think we can dispose of that one very quickly. Now, of course, all that money will be intended to go to Ukraine. Lots of money is pouring into Ukraine. 18 billion euros that you've talked about, Lot, lots more. I mean, I'm now hearing you know, it's going up from 2 billion euros a month to I think it's 10 billion euros a month. It goes straight in. Most of it goes straight out again. And that's been the story with Ukraine since at least 2014 and arguably even before. And again, that's partly what this is all about. And of course, you talk about the situation in Ukraine uh, and Ukraine having suffered a massive economic 
contraction. Um, Eve Smith at Naked Capitalism has provided some really good data on this, uh, you know, 30% GDP contraction, 38% GDP contraction, according to some figures. But I'm going to make my own observation here. I think that even these figures are frankly fiction, because I don't think there is any Ukrainian economy to speak of uh, operating anymore. There are some farmers who are collecting grain, I mean, you know, the agricultural economy is always more resilient in the face of these things than the industrial economy is. You still have shops that sell goods. But to be straightforward about it, industrial production in Ukraine has almost entirely collapsed. I mean, it's hardly possible now for factories to keep working. I mean, the big factories get sh uh, uh, come under missile attacks on the Russians. The small factories, how do they get by with ir increasingly erratic power supplies? So given that industry is the spine of any economy, especially an economy like Ukraine's, which is, doesn't have the enormously overdeveloped services sector that we see in the West. So how is it possible that the GDP contraction is only 30, 38%. Well, there's a very simple answer because what you do is you have to calculate the GDP figures. The way you calculate GDP figures is by looking at the total value of goods and services in an economy. And that figure is now becoming distorted because of all these tens of billion dollars of Western aid that are going into the country and then straight out again. That's making the GDP figures almost certainly look a lot better than they really are. In the meantime, government servants, bureaucracy, the police, all of these people, to the extent that they're being paid their salaries, they're being paid their salaries on Western aid. I suspect that's to a great extent true of the military uh, as well. It's very much Afghanistan all over again, South Vietnam before that all over again. You don't have a real functioning economy anymore. What you have is something that is on permanent life support based on what the West is providing. So that's what I'm going to say about Ukraine. Now, the European economy is a wholly different, much more complicated, much more interesting story because there's two aspects to the European thing. The first is... Is Europe going to go into a recession this year? I don't know a single credible economist who thinks it's not. In fact, there are lots of signs of recession all across Europe all the time. And, um, you know, we're not talking about an economic collapse, but we're certainly talking about a severe downturn. I mean, go to the Financial Times, go to all sorts of places. I've seen that um, living standards in Europe have suffered the biggest contraction they have seen um, over the last few months since the end of the Second World War, even greater than during the uh, global financial crisis of 2008. So that is Europe's problem this year. And of course, if the weather changes, it's been unusually warm, except for a cold patch in December, but it's been unusually warm overall. But if there's a major cold period, you know, in the next few weeks, well, we could start to see, you know, all those 
threatened energy blackouts and all the all of those sort of things. But that's the immediate problem. Looking forward, and now there is an emerging consensus about this. Europe's problems are getting worse, and we've discussed this many times. Um, energy costs in Europe are now structurally higher than they are in any other part of the world, of the industrialized world. European goods are going to become increasingly uncompetitive. This is now universally accepted. Um, and we are starting to see a process of deindustrialization. And the European media are talking about it. So, you know, some people say all is well. No cause for concern. Those people, and there are at least as many, by the way, who are saying the saying otherwise, who are saying that Europe is stuffed. <laughs> They're the people you should follow, and they are the people who are providing the real data. Hmm. What uh, what do you make about the the story saying that uh, companies are moving from Europe to the United States now, or they're definitely being courted? to move yeah. to the United States. And even I was reading a story the other day that BlackRock is even looking at uh, moving whatever Ukrainian industries, companies, viable companies in Ukraine, moving them to the United States as well. Is, do you buy into that? Uh, to those oh, reports? absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, this is, you know, a massive operation of plunder. I'm going to use that word straightforwardly because that's what it is. I mean, so, you know, whatever, whatever's left in Ukraine that has any value, you transfer it to the United States. And of course, BlackRock is now in discussions with the Zelensky uh, government. I believe they've been talking to Zelensky himself. And of course, you know, um, he will be uh, agreeing to all of this because even if it doesn't help Ukraine, and remember, if they transfer to the United States, they're not employing people in Ukraine anymore in the way that they were. But of course, all of the Ukrainian investors in these companies will have their rights protected. And, you know, we can guess who some of these investors are. Maybe they include a gentleman whose name either does start with a Z or perhaps doesn't. <laughs> I mean, you know, that, that's probably going to be going on on a, a very significant scale now. So, I mean, you know, th this is part of the process. But let's, you know, Ukraine is, as I said, I mean, it's a disaster area economically. I mean, in truth, what is being done to this country is just so appalling and so tragic that words are not adequate to describe it. But let's talk about Europe, because, yes, there is now undoubtedly courtship from the United States to get European companies to relocate to the United States. And some are definitely thinking about doing it, especially parts of the chemical industry in Germany. Apparently, they're already got serious plans to do that too. But the other thing is, it's interesting that others are now jumping in on that game as well. The Chinese are apparently also coming along to European companies and saying to them, look, your biggest market isn't the US, it's China. That's where you're making your money. Why don't you come and relocate your production to us? 
we've got very cheap energy costs. Our energy costs are going to get even cheaper still because we've got all these arrangements now with the Saudis and the Russians. So come to China. And, you know, the Indians before very long will be in on this game too. And who knows, the Indonesians, the Brazilians. <laughs> Everybody's going to be in on this game. Perhaps, who knows, at some point, even the Russians, once, uh, uh, you know, things have work them way through my joint. But the fact is that um, Europe is deindustrializing. There's articles in the Financial Times about it. There's concerns expressed by European leaders. That's the long-term problem. In the meantime, they also have this problem, this immediate problem, which is the recession they're going to be facing this year. And the fact that next year they're not going to have cheap Russian gas and cheap Russian oil to refill their reserves. And that's going to cause them serious problems in 2023, 2024. And again, there's an emerging consensus about this. Yeah, well, they're trying to fill up uh, their storage with as much U.S. LNG as yeah. possible and some Qatari as well. But they're trying frantically to get as much U.S. LNG in there as they possibly can, which leads me to my final question. Has the, uh, has the oil price cap, has the gas price cap worked? No, let's, let's deal with the first point about LNG from the U.S. because it's an important one. The problem with um, the Europeans turning to the U.S. for LNG and oil is that they're doing it at exactly the time when the shale revolution has run its course. And we seem to be in a situation in the US of declining fossil fuel production, both for oil and for gas. And given that that is so, um, the US's ability to meet European demand, which is always limited. And remember, LNG is inherently much more expensive than pipeline gas from Russia anyway. But the U.S.'s ability to meet European needs, as well as satisfying its own, is declining. It's not enough now. It's going to be even less as the years move on. And I'm going to make a further guess that the United States, which has, of course, an interest in keeping energy prices low, as low as possible domestically, is at some point going to start prioritizing LNG for its own economy and oil as well. And there'll be less for the Europeans. So they've attached themselves to the US as an energy producer, even though, as I said, all the indicators are that over time, this is not a producer that can meet their needs. And everybody, every single energy economist that I know, an energy expert, has been telling them this. But of course, you know, if you're Robert Harbeck and people like that, Ursula von der Leyen, you don't want to hear that. Um, Robert Harbeck, by the way, has just unveiled a new plan for um, Germany to move 80% of its energy production to, you know, the new technologies, renewables, windmills, that kind of thing. I don't think anybody thinks that's viable except perhaps himself. But that is his plan. Very difficult to see how a process of deindustrialization can be prevented if you are um, going to embark on that sort of plan. So, I mean, I think that's what, what I was going to say about this. Now, I, I've 
if you could just remind me of the second your second question, well, which ha- is, has have uh, have the oil price caps worked? Have the oh yeah uh, no, gas no. price caps worked? No, no, they haven't worked. The Indians, the Chinese, the Turks, all of these countries are just ignoring them, and um, at the moment, of course, at this particular juncture, oil prices anyway are, you know, they 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 they, they fell off. Um, Partly because of the warm weather, uh, partly because Guy Biden, you know, taking oil out of the strategic reserves, all that sort of thing. Partly because we are now in the early stages of a recession in Europe and, by the way, possibly in the United States as well. And partly because the Chinese economy has been closed. So we've had a dip, a significant dip in oil prices. So at the moment... The oil price cap, which is the only important one, because gas prices, I mean, the the Russian trade in gas, natural gas to Europe, including LNG, is, is coming to an end anyway. The Russians are going to start redirecting LNG eastward, as well as oil eastward. But um, these price caps at the moment are meaningless because... The Russian oil has been selling anyway on the market in most markets below the price caps. But in some markets, China, Japan, by the way, Japan is not abiding by the oil price cap, even though it's a G7 state. It said that Russian oil from the Sahalin area will can be imported into Japan in disregard of the oil. It's, it's, it's you know, um, not, doesn't fall under the oil price cap. And to the extent that Japan imports Russian oil, and apparently Japan is planning to import more Russian oil, it comes from Sakhalin, so it's not going to be part of the Russian oil price cap. But there's no evidence that any buyer is interested in the, any actual buyer of Russian oil is interested in this oil price gap. And apparently Russian output has remained, oil output has remained pretty strong and Russian oil exports have remained pretty strong. There was a story, I think, in Bloomberg that, you know, oil exports from Russia had cr- crashed by half, more than half in December. That turned out to be completely wrong. And There's no sign that the oil price gaps are working. But when oil prices start rising later this year, as everybody expects them to do, when China's economy starts to increase its um, momentum and starts to import more oil, that's when they're really going to start to have an effect. Because at that point, oil prices are going to start moving above the cap including for Russian oil. The producers in the Far East are not going to pay any attention. The European producers, what are they going to, uh, consumers rather, what are they going to do? They won't be able to buy the cheapest oil around, which will be Russian, because it will still be trading above the oil price cap. So they will exclude themselves from direct purchases of Russian oil they will still be buying Russian oil, but they will be buying it from the East Asians, from the Indians and the Chinese at a premium instead of at a discount. So, I mean, you know, it's 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 actually going to work against the Europeans 
in the not very long term. And the Russians aren't really affected by it at all. All right. Uh, anything else you want to add? Uh, I think we covered a lot of ground. No, I think we covered an awful lot of ground. But as I said, I mean, um, there are two Ukrainian crises playing out. There's the one which is the war. And I mean, you know, there's always uncertainties about war. War's difficult thing to talk about and predict, especially if, you know, if you're not military, you don't have a military background, which neither of us do. But I mean, I still think that you can still see the general direction of events there. And by the summer, I, I think, you know, it'd be very clear who is winning the war and who is losing. And it'd be the Russians who are winning and the Russians who are losing, uh, and the Ukrainians rather, who are losing. But that's a big story. But a much bigger story, ultimately, the really key one is the economic one, because this policy, this economic war that the West has waged against the Russians, what it has done is that it's come on top of a series of incredibly bad economic decisions, which reach back at least to the 1990s in Europe. I mean, it's we've had one bad policy after another, the euro, the creation of the euro, the uh, uh, switch to renewables in energy, all kinds of things have happened. And this, I think, is going to be the straw that's going to break the camel's back, because what's now going to happen is that we now, it does look to me as if we now have a process of deindustrialization beginning to settle in. And the moment that starts to take off, and it's now in the early stages of doing so. Um, all precedent suggests it becomes irreversible. And that is going to change the, co the, the, the character of Europe. And it's going to create social tensions in Europe. And it's going to create a long-term crisis in Europe that there's no clear solution to. And that's the big story of the Ukrainian crisis. I mean, the Russian economy has held up remarkably well. We're getting PMI figures from Russia at the moment, which show a surge in industrial output. I mean, you know, manufacturing is growing there. Um, I remember that, you know, early in, you know, the first half of 2022, there were predictions that around June, when the Russian companies ran out of spare parts, production in Russia would fall off a cliff. It's done exactly the opposite. And um, they're apparently able even to now make increasing numbers of the components that they couldn't, and they're importing others and all sorts of things. So industrial production is surging. Unemployment in Russia is falling. It's at the lowest level it's been apparently since the Soviet collapse. Um, prices are starting to fall as well. So they are actually shrugging off the sanctions war. But there's still a relatively small proportion of the global economy because Russia, its major role has been as an energy and commodities producer. You're talking about manufacturing. They're not a big manufacturing exporter. Europe is a manufacturing exporter and a manufacturing importer on a huge scale. And 
Europe's position as an industrialized economy is now irrevocably changing. And that, as I said, that's going to be the big event, the big thing that people will remember going forward from the Ukrainian crisis. That's that's the real big story here, that it has completed the process leading to the complete deindustrialization of Europe and the change of Europe into a post-industrial economy. Big change, historic change. All right, uh, we will leave it there, thedurad.locals.com, and we are also on Rockfin, and the Durad shop, 10% off. Use the code, good day. Take care.